Howdy, listeners. Mooney and I are launching a new limited series where we explore Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth. We're going to be following heroic, rugged individualists as they set off into the western wilderness in search of adventure, glory, and bootstraps that they can pull off. Wait, have you read the book? Oh, well... No, but I have moved it from the pile by my door to the pile by my computer. And next step, I'll probably move it to my nightstand, followed by the toilet. And uh, finally, probably just end up getting the audiobook. Uh, okay. All right. I don't think this is the vibe that this book is going for. It's more of a deep dive into the American psyche, developed through long years of Native American genocide, turning of millions of human beings into chattel to turn a profit and endless wars of imperial expansion. Grandin is like Dante, leading America, layer by layer, through its own inferno. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I guess I should probably get reading then. Because starting this Sunday, we're going to be going through the book chapter by chapter, talking about Grandin's major themes, interviewing historians and journalists, and tracing the horrifying arc of American history from the colonies to today. And we want you, our beloved listeners, to join us on this journey into the abyss. So make sure you get your book. Definitely do not DM me on Twitter about a digital copy if you want one. Definitely don't do that. And join us every Sunday for this foreseeable future as we head west. Folks, you just heard it. This is a trailer reaction podcast. <laughs> uh, we're reacting to the trailer we just heard. You've seen the timer at the bottom of this podcast. This is an hour and 40 minutes of talking about this trailer, <laughs> reacting to it. <laughs> Guys, I am so hyped. I'm sitting here with my physical copy of Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth. And what I most want to know is... Why did you throw out all my great ideas for punny titles for this uh, podcast you're doing? <laughs> Greg, you are you're a creative mastermind, and we do respect your title choice a lot. It's really, I think it just kind of came the way it did. We're calling this series Ending the Myth, and we, me and Brian, are 100% ending it for you right here, right now. <clears throat> this has been a really, really... Uh, Long time coming. This has been really our passion and side project that we've been working on really in secret for nine months now. From the start of 2021 to now, I'm doing a lot of research. And essentially, we're just going to be doing a deep dive into the American psyche and just really exploring, I think. I mean, for me personally, The End of the Myth has been such an impactful book and it helped me understand our world better. and. That's really kind of what sparked this idea to analyze it more, bring in new um, sources, reading primary sources, and really expanding on Grandin's theory in general, learning as we go along. Um, and I think that me and Brian, we have a jam-packed session, and every Sunday we're going to be having a new episode, uh, just kind of diving into the end of the myth to really get to the root of American history and just how we got to where we are right now. Um, it's a really awesome book, very accessible. 
I see, highly recommend you, your friends, everyone read along and, uh, and join us on this journey as we had West. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do we need to do to manifest our destiny uh, with this podcast, Brian? Well, what you need to do is either get your, you know, your ebook that you got nefariously online, your hard, uh, your physical copy of the book that you purchased from a reputable dealer, or uh, your audiobook. And this Sunday, we're going to start with episode zero, where we just sort of lay out what the myth is exactly, right? We're going to talk Frederick Jackson Turner, America's favorite historian. Uh, and we're going to discuss some of the issues that are actually covered in chapter seven of the book. Because uh, it's funny that it takes Greg Granted to chapter seven to explain uh, what the myth is. <laughs> it's, this is the Pulp Fiction of uh, book club podcasts, okay? It's going to jump around in time. Just you have to keep up. Well, I like to think about it as the things to do in Denver when you're dead version of the <laughs> Of a podcast. <laughs> but yes, Greg, whatever, you know, 1990s uh, Tarantino knockoff analogy you want to make, uh, that's what this is. And uh, it's going to be great. As somebody was saying, we are going to be exploring what makes America America, but we're also going to be diving into the nitty gritty of American history. And this means this this listening to this series will count as college credit. <laughs> for American right. History yes. 101 and 102. You will have a PhD by the end of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, speaking of uh, ripping off other people's work, or should I say homage, <laughs> um, this series, as I understand it, will all be available for free on the main feed because if we put it behind a paywall... Uh, being uh, almost entirely and in uh, title and description based on a single work uh, called The End of the Myth by Greg Grandin, we might have a problem uh, from Metropolitan Books. You might get some emails. No, no. There's a letter in my email box from Greg Grandin. It's, it says greg.grandin001, so we know him, at hotmail.com. <laughs> And his in home it, address is 1502. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And in it, he uh, says, uh, hey, Munya, hey, Brian, uh, go for it. Do what you want with my book. So Perfect. we are legally clear. I have been told from our future city attorney that we are perfectly legally in the right <laughs> and cannot be prosecuted for anything we do. If podcasters do it, it is not illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Seattle Sox. No, scratch that. Mechanical Freak Podcast. Still getting used to that. Still, still getting used to it. It's been a long time since I had to bring the show in here. Uh, we're broadcasting live from, let me check Colin's notes here. Greg's boat. <laughs> we're on Greg's boat. We're on the Nyad. Uh, it's me. It's Greg. It's an old school pandemic episode where everybody else has left us <laughs> to our own, uh, you know, devices. Well, but we dragged everybody has, but we have we dragged one person to see with us. <laughs> we have a very special guest. <laughs> Andrew Hedden is the associate director of the Harry Bridges Center for Labor Studies and a PhD candidate 
in history at the University of Washington. More importantly, Andrew is an old Bothalite, a favorite son of <laughs> hell for a day or a lifetime. Go Cougars. <laughs> you can't stop the blue train. You can't stop the blue train. That's right. <laughs> oh, awful. Awful. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, a uh, friend of the show, you've been on before to talk about Battle in Seattle. And yeah, you're an old friend of Colin and mine from high school. And I guess and, I'm your Seattle movie guy now. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Actually, that is true. Special um, movie credit. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is the last time we had you on was to talk about Seattle movie uh uh Battle in Seattle, a great film everyone should check out. Uh don't bother listening to our episode about it. Just just watch the movie. It's uh magnificent. You'll get fact, lost in the immersive shots, the <laughs> wonderful character development. Uh yeah, it's, yeah. it's a fantastic. You'll movie. be torn. Your sympathies will be torn between, <laughs> you know, activists fighting for a better world and the cops. It's a, f- a film that was so successful that the director uh, retired from filmmaking <laughs> afterwards and moved to the Caribbean to run a car garage, I think. <laughs> Where, I, I mean, yeah. well, like, you, know, you just got to get out on top, you know, yeah. like it's about knowing when to walk away from the table. In fact, we are talking today about the classic 1984 Seattle documentary Streetwise. Earlier this summer, Andrew wrote an essay for the release of the film on home video, I think for the first time by the Criterion Collection. And uh, that appears in the liner notes for that. And also an essay about Streetwise in Real Change. Um, And I'm going to read from that right now. Streetwise, to the frustration of some viewers, didn't proffer any solutions at all. Instead, it profiled the painful solutions street youth had to find for themselves. Violent trade-offs like sex work that routinely landed them in prison, but paid much more than the social work job programs mandated as a condition of parole or even the wages of their parents. But watching the film now, with its many scenes of jail cells and visitation rooms, suggests something very important about solutions. Namely, that punishment and policing are nothing new. Indeed, they have long been default responses to social dislocation, managing the consequences of poverty but doing little to provide the extraordinary material resources needed to render the violent trade-offs of street life unnecessary. Uh, Andrew... So it was released, finally uh, available for people to see uh, after uh, being really hard to get a hold of for a very long time. Really awesome. The the Criterion put it out this summer. We would have had you on, but we've just had scheduling conflicts. But really, it's such an important movie. It's such a classic for this town, but not just for this town, for just an incredible piece of of documentary um, and such a powerful story on, I think, a subject matter that is, you know, uh, ever more relevant today so it bears still talking about even though it came out uh in summer um tell us about streetwise well um so streetwise it did come out on vhs tape once upon a time okay (laughs) and i have um pretty vivid memory of picking it up when i was a teenager i think from uh the public library bothell library hell yeah bringing it home and watching it and just getting a completely different view of Seattle than you'd ever see yeah. um, in any, in any form of media. And, um, uh, you know, 30 years on, that's what still makes the film special. 
so the story of the of the of the of how the film came to be was that um, you know in the late seventies, uh, Seattle was really getting hailed by national media um, as as the new you know a great new urban environment um, where you know um, skilled, educated middle class people could live safely in the city. It wasn't a city in crisis like New York City or Los Angeles or Detroit. It was an up and coming city that was you know, safe for families and, you know, one with nature and, and, and on and on. So, um, Seattle was on all the, at the top of all these lists of the, the, um, you know, best cities in the United States or the highest quality of living. Mo- um, uh, most, yeah. Most livable cities. Mm-hmm, I think you mm-hmm. quote the uh, 1975 Harper's piece that sort of is the first, to name it that. And I mean, yeah. you never stopped hearing that for the rest of time from that and the time funniest on. thing about that piece in Harper's was that it was an anti-urban uh, piece. It was actually like the least worst American city. And they, right, they, right. they, they ranked all these urban, you know, all these measures of, of quality of life. And Seattle just happened to be the worst, the least worst. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was still, you know, urban areas were still bad, according to this article. But yeah. Seattle was the least worst. So we can yeah. take our W's where we can get them. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's right. speaking of W's, in when this, you know, at the time this film was being shot, 1983, my parents visited here in a Mazda pickup on a seven-month uh, camping trip around the country, where they saw basically all of it. Uh, it's uh, and they conceived you, and then I was, I, I, I was <laughs> in the back of a Mazda, <laughs> in the back of a conceived in the back of a Mazda pickup with a canopy, somewhere in like a campground, like uh, Mount Baker or something, mm-hmm. and then they moved here, and I was born here, uh, and and that you know, I mean, people were coming here from, they 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 were from the East Coast, they met in Houston, and they lived in L.A. when they. When they started, they quit their jobs and started that trip, and I, I, I ended up in Seattle. It was the, it was a place um, that didn't suck for a certain class of people that they were. He was an accountant, she was a nurse, and you could come out here and live in the suburbs, and it was all those things in the magazines, you know. Yeah, so um, it was um, because of it was in all these magazines that um, Streetwise came to be here. So there was a, mm-hmm. a Life magazine was doing a feature on runaway youth because this is also the early 80s. There's a lot of panic about um, the disintegration of the family. You know, uh, Ronald Reagan's, you know, um, harping on that quite a bit. So uh, Life magazine has an interest in doing a piece about runaway youth, street youth. Um, and uh, they're looking for a city to feature. Um, and they decide, well, we want to, we want to find street youth someplace where they're not supposed to be. So let's go to the the best city, you know, the, the most livable city in the United States. Let's go to mm-hmm. Seattle. So they send, um, a journalist, Cheryl Martin and a photojournalist, uh, Mary Ellen Mark to Seattle to do this piece. And, um, I think they spend like the summer, I think it's summer of 1983. They spend like a month or two, li- um, uh, on the streets, getting to know kids, taking pictures, interviewing them, learning about their life. And um, uh, Mary Ellen Mark was so taken by the people that she met um, that she decided to um, call her husband, who was a documentary filmmaker uh, who had come up out of um, uh, documentary filmmaking in, in Britain, um, Martin Bell. And so... Uh, she called him and uh, they'd been talking about making a film for a long time. So they decided, well, let's come make a film in Seattle. 
So they came to Seattle in like the fall of 1983 and um, they spent um, several months just daily going down to uh, Pike Street um, where uh, street youth were hanging out um, and just documenting their life. And they, they got to go be there so often and they got to know the kids so well that um, it was basically like they were invisible. So they were, they, they were able to film, film, uh, what was going on downtown without, um, you know, you know, what, what would be going on downtown regardless of whether they're there or not. Um, yeah, you really get a, a very intimate sense mm-hmm. from the movie, um, that, you know, uh, you're really being led into a world that, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, no one was really seeing. So then they, they got to know these kids really well and they, they recorded interviews with them too about their daily lives, um, about what it was to survive on the streets, what their family life was like. Um, and they, uh, when they went to edit the film, the interviews, the audio interviews became the narration of the film, um, which is one of the most, still one of the most um, uh, remarkable things about the movie is that there's no, there's no filmmaker's narration. It's the the whole film is told through the story, the words of uh, these kids on the street. Yeah, it's not like a documentary today where like it's whole, it's a whole like clout enterprise by some like indie filmmaker to insert themselves uh, into uh, the story. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's a really powerful and intimate portrait of these children who have been discarded mm-hmm. uh, by the society around them. Yeah. It's, and it's, um, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's also, I mean, 30 years later, it's this, it's a slice of Seattle history um, that really hasn't been documented in other ways. Um, you know, people identify Seattle in the 1980s with, um, you know, Microsoft or the building of the, you know, the Seattle skyline. They don't think about, the inequality at the beginnings of Seattle's, you know, white collar middle-class economy that um, has since grown much, much worse. And it's very, you know, the things that you see in streetwise, um, you know, street, the things that street youth were dealing with um, have only gotten worse. There's more homeless kids than there, oh, ever, yeah. than there were um, by huge orders of magnitude. Yeah. And um, homelessness is, has, you know, increased enormously as well. Um, and so in the essay that I, in, in writing this essay for, um, the DVD release, I wanted to look back and see how was this film received by, uh, people in Seattle at the time. Uh Aha. Well, and what Seattle times reviewer, John Hartle called it one of the best movies anyone has ever made in the Northwest. And I went to the Seattle times archives and looked, and I did not find a review by John Hartle of Assassins with Antonio Banderas. So, <laughs> you know, I, so, I hard mean, to say you know, if that's a real, you know, if like that's a, a legitimate statement. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe he'd only seen one movie, you know. <laughs> we all know. No, uh, to Hartle's credit, you know, that um, he, he saw what a great film it was from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and he, unlike some other reviewers of the film, really appreciated it and did a lot to convince viewers that it was a film worth seeing and that it was a, that just because it was a documentary didn't make anything that it was showing any less true. Yeah. Um, there was this huge, while they were filming um, in, in Seattle in the, in the fall of 83, um, the, the piece that um, Cheryl Martin and, and Mary Ellen Mark wrote for Life was published. And there was this 
kind of panic in the local media over this article that appeared in Life magazine. And mm-hmm. could this really be true? And there was a Seattle PI front front page um, for, for those who, the Seattle PI was not always a um, online only. Um, <laughs> like, uh, it, it wasn't just a, a clickbait site that will probably give your computer a virus. It wasn't even on owned it. by the uh, Seattle Times company in the Blevins. Yeah, it, was a, it was a, it was a bonafide daily. And, um, but uh, you know, it's it could still publish crap, and they published this terrible um, piece that was uh, the headline something like um, you know Street Youth. Could it really be so bad, or something like that? And it basically <laughs> in was, America, <laughs> yeah, questioning everything mm-hmm. they could about the Life magazine piece, um, and you know, but they were it was really cherry picking because like there's a picture that shows kids with a gun. And they were like, well, you know, social workers say that, you know, guns are not common downtown and um, or or talked about kids, you know, getting food out of dumpsters. And they're like, well, most kids don't eat food out of dumpsters. Um, (laughs) But it was but it was like nitpicking about a very specific things. And it wasn't was the the concern wasn't with the fact that there's kids on the street. I mean, and that there's violence on the street and. and so I think well, so. There was this panic about that, which I think Streetwise answers. I mean, it, Streetwise exactly. shows that this that this stuff was going well, on. Imagine as a journalist, as a newspaper, having the criticism like, "Can this reporting that this documentary has done be true?" and not, and your response not being, "Maybe I should go ask these kids. Maybe we should do. If we don't know the answer to this, maybe we should go and." like do the same kind of street level reporting. Maybe we should put several reporters for a month on like going down and like really investigating, talking to these kids, finding out about their lives like these journalists did and find out. And instead, no, they, they called up for some quotes to back up their, their sort of pre arranged uh, position from like, whatever institutional sources. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, it was a different Just time. Disgusting. Journalists then weren't as good as they are now. You know? so, <laughs> well, I mean, getting back to the Post-Intelligencer and the reviews of this film when it came out, I thought they gave, you quoted, a, like I think it was for the Post-Intelligencer, a very funny review from them, which was, don't watch the movie, it'll make you sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> Incredible. So to John Hartle's credit, yeah. so John Hartle, uh, you know, he goes to bat for this movie and does, after he does this really... A uh, positive review of the film. Um, uh, maybe a month or two later, after the film had been getting a lot of national attention, um, it gets an Oscar nomination for best documentary. Uh, John Hartle. So the the number one thing that people are, people neg- react negatively to the film, uh, besides the fact that it's sad, and we'll get to that in mm-hmm. a second, is that is this true? Is this really true? Did the filmmakers influence you know the kids that they're they're filming, and that may, renders whatever we see as you know not true. Or not worth, mm-hmm. which is a kind of idiotic question you can only ask having not seen the fucking movie, right? So, um, and when so, you don't want people to see the movie, so Hartle does this. He does like a feature. He has like a documentary filmmaking one hundred and one feature, where he's like, "Here's the history of documentary filmmaking, and here is the fact that you can't make a documentary without raising questions about what's true and what's not, and that doesn't devalue the you know the you know the." the strength or importance of what you see on the screen. So anyway, he's like, he's like walking through, you know, he's trying to, to convince Seattle audiences that you know, get over it. your, your problems with this. Um, the Seattle PI on the other hand, and I can't even remember the filmmakers or not the filmmaker, the, the film critics name. Um, 
maybe it's William Arnold. He writes this. Um, he writes this this thing that's like, yeah, is this film true? Probably. Yeah, it seems pretty true. It seems pretty authentic. Should you see this movie? Well, it's important on, from a sociological standpoint, but as a piece of entertainment uh, that you should see or not, it's like this is this is his exact words. It's like visiting the uh, the terminal cancer ward. <laughs> as, like, I think he says as pointless an exercise yes. as visiting a terminal. Case yeah, those are his words. So he says, you know, stay away, stay yeah. away, because this yeah. will make you sad. Don't you know? Look away, um, you know. And uh, it just it just confirms one of the points that the filmmakers were trying to make. Like the opening the opening scenes of Streetwise are of all these people downtown walking through the street, walking down Pike. Um, going about their daily business and just walking past these kids every single day, mm-hmm. not stopping and thinking what is their lives like or things like that. And that's what the film does. And it does it very consciously. The, op- the opening bits are people going by and all the traffic that's going on. And then the camera stops and it stops and it, and it focuses on the kids and it goes into, the, it goes into their lives. And um, that's what this filmmaker's like, no, no, don't do that. You know, keep walking. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah. A, it's an interesting commentary on both like uh, how that person, how that reviewer views uh, film like as an art but also kind of how they view journalism too which yeah. is that like look journalism and art isn't here to make you feel sad it's here to make you feel happy mm-hmm. all right it's here to make you forget your your cares and your worries right and uh, that seems to be what a lot of the response to Streetwise was which is hey Seattle don't look at this thing over here <laughs> like you know just a misdirection like don't look over there that's just gonna make you sad look look over here we gotta if we ignore it it will know? go away yeah which, you know, I think we might find as a continuous uh, issue. Um, but maybe we should talk a little bit about what is in the film itself, right? Um, so you, you get to meet these these kids, right? It, the whole film takes place basically on what, like, First and Pike or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah there was a, um, there was a, a payphone. Remember those? There was a payphone <laughs> near First and Pike where all the kids would, um, would use. So that's, that's where they're posted up there. Um, and there was an abandoned building, um, which is now there's a coffee shop, probably like a T-shirt souvenir shop on the corner of First and Pike. But it was um, boarded up at that time. So mm-hmm. it was a easy place for kids just to gather and hang out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in meeting with these kids, uh, I, I think one of the things that strikes you right off the bat is there is the kid uh, Rat is one of the kids that you get is the main character, I guess, throughout the story. You know, he tells the story. They, they basically ask him, like, how did he become homeless? And he says, you know, uh, my dad says if you get caught selling weed, don't come home. So I didn't. Right. <laughs> you, know? Yep. you know, he gets into legal trouble. And so he just leaves. Right. You know, and never sees his parents again. And you start to see this, like, common thread throughout uh, the thing of uh, one, maybe the nuclear family doesn't work so well. <laughs> In a lot of circumstances. At the very least, it, it wasn't working for these And kids. you get this story of, yeah, divorce, abuse, and, um, you know, kids who are just flatly abandoned by their parents, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I mean, um, the the word homeless is a little is a little inaccurate for a yeah. lot of these kids. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, are runaways um, from outside of Seattle. But the film itself, go, like, visits a lot of the mm-hmm. homes of these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, visits with their parents mm-hmm. and documents, um, you know, the c- conflicts they have with their parents. Um, there's a really um, um, uh, moving scene where this uh, young woman is confronting her mom about her stepdad who'd been sexually abusing her. There's a handful of times, and I, that's like a very concrete one, where you 
the idea that these kids have parents gets introduced and you learn to wait for the other shoe to drop of like, what have these parents done to these kids? And it comes, you know, every time it comes. And in that case, yeah, it's just, yeah, frankly, very frankly confronting the mother. But the, what you learn is that the whole, that whole family dynamic where this kid is living a, a life partially on the street has something to do with that home life, which is greatly informed by sexual abuse by the stepdad that is sometime in the past and the present is a, a sort of status quo where that, that family unit is still what it is. You know, mm-hmm. that stepdad, the mom, you know, that's just a thing that happened. That's just a situation that has been, you know, is not great that has been moved on from basically deeply sad, but also like, you know, it's very, just very telling, very like informative about like, if you're, I mean, it's answering the question, like why, why are these kids out here? And mm-hmm. yeah. Well, one of my, um, I think the most powerful thing about the film is how um, it's not just there to make you sad. I mean, if you're actually mm-hmm. watching yeah. and paying attention to the film, mm-hmm. you see how resilient um, youth are in creating families of their own Yeah, mm-hmm. and how they're sur- they're surviving, you know, through their friendships. And uh, one of the most common motifs throughout the film is these kids hugging each other. Mm-hmm. And um, if you watch it close enough, um, it's those moments of happiness where they're hugging each other, they're smiling, uh, they're laughing, you know, um, that really breaks your heart. Cause you're like, these are, you know, they're, they're surviving. Um, they're making their lives livable, um, you know, despite all the shit that they're having to go through. And, um, that's really powerful and that's not sad. That's, um, that's, you know, it's inspiring. It's also, um, infuriating that, that yeah. they're forced to do that. Um, but it does, um, you, if you, if you really watch the film and you pay attention to it, you understand why the kids are there. Like they would rather oh, yeah. be, they would rather be there on the street with their friends, um, making their lives on their own terms than they would like to be at home or in a, you know, a, a shit paid job, you know, they, um, they'd rather make their lives on the street. And in, in the film, um, you know, there's no, there's, it's, it doesn't beat you over the head with this, but it, it, it's very consciously just, you know, portraying that, that part of their lives. Yeah. I mean, you bring up the, the point about the, the jobs and, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the scene. Uh, so we, we get introduced to a, another main character in the story who eventually they're going to make another documentary about later named tiny. Right. And, you know, she is working on the street and stuff like that, right? And her mom at one point is telling the filmmakers about how she had confronted her about it and asked her how much money she made, right? So you could tell us a little about about that and sort of the this issue about, like, wages and, you know, things like that. Because her mom is also working just in a very different type of job, right, as a, as a waitress. Yeah, so Tiny, the relationship between Tiny and her mom is one of the central, like, parent-child dynamics they show in the film. And um, Tiny's mom is working as a waitress in some downtown, like, diner. And, um, like you said, they, they interview her mother, and she's just, uh, she can't believe how much money her daughter brought home um, from working, doing, from, uh, doing sex work downtown. And, um, the, there's a few times where, um, the teenagers will talk about how much they're making, you know, for, for particular jobs that they'll turn, 
um, or tricks that they'll turn downtown. And, and when, when we say you, teenagers, we're talking like like 12 to 14. Yeah, yeah. Tiny's yeah. 14, well, I believe, in the filming of this. Yeah, yeah so the, the ages younger. downtown, are, yeah, like 12 to 19 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a range of kid, kids. Yes, but, there are other um, kids, yeah. But uh, if you if you if you take at face value if 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 you take at face value that that's how much they were actually making, and you compare it to what the Washington State minimum wage was at that time, yeah, the disparity is just appalling. I mean, they were pulling down in one afternoon. They could um, doing sex work. They could make more than their mother would make in a week um, in a minimum wage job, um, and and um, you know, talking to Tiny, it's as they interview her, it's. Uh, you can see how excited she is that she has money to buy things and she has, you know, so she, and um, that she never had before and things like that. So, yeah, you see, you see the, you see the material reasons, you know, just not the psychological, you know, reasons at home that are driving kids to the street, but also the material things that are keeping them there. You know, why is, um, it's a really, it's really lucrative and, um, there's moments they have a social worker that um, works with some of these kids and, and he's trying to get them back into their job programs and stuff like that. And he calls it job job therapy, therapy. (laughs) job therapy. Right. (laughs) And um, if you think about what their option, these kids options were, you know, I can work, I can work tricks whenever I, you know, when, whenever's convenient for me and I can pull, you know, and I can pull a big chunk of money in a few days versus like Uber. Yeah, having to work, um, you know, uh, nine to five, seven days, you know, seven days a week, and not pull down that same amount of money, and have to be on somebody else's schedule, um, yeah, is uh, the disparity. You, it's it should be obvious. Yeah, I think you know it's it's interesting in that scene right after uh, Tiny's mom sort of explains to the film crew about the money. Uh, her and Tiny are sort of like the mom's budgeting, basically, and her and Tiny are kind of having a conversation about that. And you get this idea because I, I guess as a moral upstanding citizen or whatever, you're watching this going, why is the mom not outraged that Tiny is doing this or whatever? But you get this very distinct sense of like, look, the mom's working this shitty waitressing job, probably making two bucks an hour. Um the her new husband, who I love that they all call him Larry's, but her new husband is beating the shit out of her. Apparently, she mentions at one point broke the mom's leg, doesn't work, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, even from the mom's perspective, like Tiny's living a better life, like making better choices. Yeah. And on some ways, level, you know, the mother admires the is is forced to admire the ingenuity and sort of resourcefulness inherent in being able to pull down that kind of cash mm-hmm. and for both of them certainly for the kids doing the sex work uh and what and the other ways they're getting by down there like all the the risk and violence is built into that equation and it still comes out like well i mean yeah it's money and also like what is that you know if i get killed down here or something like what is that taking away from me exactly cuz i think that's a, another sense you get um that's maybe less specific is that they don't necessarily a lot of them probably don't don't have really a vision of a future for themselves exactly yeah they live i mean that's part of it is they living day they're living day to day yeah. i mean it's survival is day to day for them and they're living day to day and that's um, that's the mentality. I mean, if you've talked to people that live on the street and they talk about getting off the street, I think that's the big one of the biggest shifts 
is just from living day to day to, to thinking more long term. But that takes security. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have you know you have to know that the that you have to feel safe knowing that you, things will be there the next day. That people will be there for you. That you'll have the, the resources to get to do things. Yeah, there has to be some material, uh, like some vision you have of of the future that is based in a material reality and that is going to be that you have some reason to think is going to be there. You know, if these kids were you know, the kids who were not running away to the, to downtown areas, but were like going to school every day, you know, kids, maybe some, a lot from their own same neighborhoods probably have some vague idea that like they, ha- they have a future life. They're looking ahead and picturing, well, someday I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be like mommy and daddy. And I'm going to guess I'm going to have a job. They may not like fully understand that, but like these kids are looking at their parents who are, miserable you know very poor being beaten by their spouses in jail and not and don't see any reason that there should be anything better for them you know yeah i mean um at some point i think i'd like to talk about to what is missing from the film and it doesn't make the film any worse but it is the filmmakers made specific choices and um that 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 leave you or that make you think so you don't see some of these kids are from middle class families mm-hmm. and you don't they don't they don't have portraits of those parents mm-hmm. and um you know that's i think that's an interesting that they didn't do that they don't visit the suburbs it's not like it would have been hard you know they could drive you know a mile or two up pike and be in uh fucking capitol hill you know um or Madison Valley, I guess in the early eighties, it would have been a little different than it is now, but not really. I mean, parts of it, it's these nice Tony homes and, yeah, and, yeah. um, you know, middle-class families and stuff. And so a lot of those kids on, yeah, a lot of the kids on the street maybe weren't, weren't from broken homes or the parents had resources, but, um, they were still emotionally abusive. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, and that's something you don't see in the film. So they don't visit they don't really leave Pike Street much, and they when they do, it's to visit the the families of parents that are obviously really struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one choice they make. Um, another choice that the filmmakers make is they don't portray sex work by by the boys, which was mm-hmm. happening just maybe not to the same degree as sex work some, among um, young women, but among uh, among boys, uh, the sex trade um, servicing older men was was really, really common. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you, you read, if you read about some of the, some of the people that are featured in the film, I mean, it's pretty clear that they were, they were some of the, some of the young boys in the film would, would turn tricks too, but they don't make that a part of the film. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they don't do that. And I think one consequence is that people don't think of Streetwise in the same context as uh, Ed Murray. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who, who, um, you know, Seattle's, um, uh, mayor who had who had to resign after um, you know uh, men came forward saying that he had hired them for under underage sex you know in the early eighties in the early eighties yeah um, and I think maybe I think the time period uh, when Murray was supposed to be doing that was like maybe a little f- later than eighty three but it was the same it was the same thing you know if if that's what he was doing he was going he was going down to Pike Street he was going downtown and he was he was picking up boys on the street and in the same, in a similar thing. And, um, it's that, that period, you know, still haunts Seattle history. I mean, Seattle today, Seattle politics yeah. mm-hmm. and 
the city still hasn't come to uh, grips with it. Yeah, and I, I think he gets like hints of it in there, and that the boys in talking with each other will mention here and there, talking about their trials and tribulations. They'll mention like, oh, you know, uh, some you know gay guy tried to pick me up or whatever, and then I I robbed him or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. some, you know, obviously super cool story about how they like kung fu kicked him in the head or whatever. And these are like tiny 14 year old boy and you're just like shut the fuck up that's not what happened and certainly if you're an adult of any experience you can watch that and read between the lines that you know obviously other things are happening you know in the story uh the the culture of the period maybe not allowing for them to talk about it as frankly as uh the girls can Mm -hmm. you know um but there's um you know i think there's well one of the great things about Streetwise and one of the testimonies to the fact that I think it was so it was true to its subjects is that um, in the years since the inter- I mean since the internet blew up and social media blew up, there kind of was a um, a little bit of a social media community that that grew up around Streetwise and, and people who are now you know adults in their in their fifties um, uh, who had been in the streets in Seattle in the eighties, remembering that time and remembering the people that were in the film. Um, there's a Facebook group. It's now private and pretty like impossible to, to find, but, um, in doing research for the, for the piece that I wrote for the criterion DVD, I was reading through, you know, these threads in this Facebook group that had been created. Um, um, all these, all these folks who had, who had been in streetwise are new people who were in streetwise talking about their lives. And, um, the people that were in streetwise, they never talked. There was, there's nothing about, oh, they, they misrepresented me or, you know, I was exploited for this film or this or that. It's all, it's all very, um, you know, they, they remember those times and, and they remember how they overcame them or how their friends succumbed to them. Um, you know, a lot of the people that are featured in the film died very young um, in the period between when the film was made and, and today. Um, and there's there's other people who are in that in that milieu who um, who've published memoirs, and um, there's one by a young gay man. I should have I should have looked it up before I, I came. Um, who who wrote self published a memoir about his time on the streets, and he's he's featured in um, some of Mary Ellen Mark's photographs, and he's but he doesn't have a talking role in the film, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, yeah, there's just I think there's a real appreciation for the film for the people who's those who have survived and lived but lived that experience um, in the present. Well, I think the filmmakers clearly I think one of the strongest choices, and I think we've talked about this, is to tell all of these stories in the words of the people they're depicting, and I think that's obviously a very strong choice. I think it leads to everything we've just been talking about: a nobody feeling being embittered about it because it was it you are it is kids like brian was saying it's kids telling you stories and you kind of have to read between the lines sometimes what sometimes they are more probably vulnerable and honest about it and sometimes they're telling a version of the truth but it is their words and you're hearing it from them and i think that also probably explains to some degree why you don't see as much discussion of sex work among the boys it's because they weren't they weren't talking about it. The the young girls in the film are, you know, very open about talking about it. It's what they're doing. They have these discussions. They're talking to each other. Probably also explains why uh, you don't see the middle, to some degree, why you don't see the middle class parents 
uh, is because it. I've, I mean, maybe you know this, but I wonder if they asked some and got you know doors slammed in their faces. You know, whereas other people chose to say. So what you see in the film is what people chose to say in front of the camera, mm-hmm. and you don't have. Well, you don't, and I think, yeah, ultimately that that leaves some stuff out, but it's a very strong choice. You know? Yeah. Um, so the film, the the memoir I mentioned is by Justin Reed Early. It's called Street Child, a memoir. Um, and ironically, it's available on Amazon.com. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a memoir by one of the, the youth that was in the film um, talking about his experiences um, on Seattle streets. Yeah, yeah and I guess... So sort of what uh, Greg was saying there, too. I, I think one of the things, just like purely coincidentally, maybe like a week or two prior to watching through wise, um, somebody on Twitter had posted this clip from a Werner Herzog documentary about the death penalty, right? And in it, he is talking to a prosecutor, and the prosecutor is accusing him of humanizing people on death row by interviewing them. And Herzog has this really great response where he says, you know, I'm neither humanizing them or dehumanizing them. The simple fact is they are human beings. And I think the strength of Streetwise is the people in it are so clearly and obviously human, right? The kids say things that particularly, you know, certainly in modern <laughs> culture are, you know, maybe offensive or whatever, right? You know, uh, at the same time, uh, and you see them do things that maybe you're like, mm, I don't know that I would do that. But they're also hysterical at times. I mean, the one kid's yeah. whole thing about how he's a playboy as he's like dyeing his hair and getting his hair permed and stuff. I mean, his whole spiel about being a playboy is one of the funniest fucking things ever. <laughs> can you, can in a you be a playboy and have a Dungeons and Dragons tattoo? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, he shows that off. <laughs> yeah, his later discussion of his Dungeons and Dragons tattoo, and the other guy saying, "I'm gonna get two dragons." You know, like one up, you know. I mean, that, I mean, that is so. That that is you can't that. help but feel for the kids like they're they're human they're people and like, they're in the children end. yeah and they're children yeah. you know yeah. that is so like it doesn't like for all the things I mean that is really I mean that's the power of it right for everything these kids are going through for the environment the things that are happening to them that they're doing like they're still so clearly children and mm-hmm. not just I mean how they look but how they think and and speak and. Uh, the things that are on their mind, you know, um, and that's uh, very powerful. Yeah, and one of the it's one of the um, the explicit themes of the film too. It comes up at the end when they're wrapping up the film. It's it, um, it was around October. It was Halloween, and one of the final sequences, you start to see a lot of masks, and mm-hmm. you start to see the kids dressing up, and that's one of the that's one of the themes that comes out in the film very explicitly. Is that these kids are trying on different you yeah. know personas different identities. Um, the problem is that they have to do this while trying to survive on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the stakes are so much higher. And, you know, yeah. is it, if you're, if you're a teenager, all teenagers have like a fucked up time. Being a teenager is fucking hard mm-hmm. as, as hell. But um, if you can do it, if you can be a teenager in a safe environment where you can fail or you can feel the exper- you know, feel the emotions of being a teenager, you can try on, you know, try out, uh, you know, what you're about and um, what your identity is, and and so on. Uh, if you can do that in a safe place, I mean, that's what being a teenager. That's great. But if you're forced to do that, um, well, well, you know, feeding yourself and and housing yourself, um, you're fucked. I mean, yeah. that's mm-hmm. that's basically it. Yeah, there's some, there are some sort of teenage 
loves and romances depicted in the film, which have the way they speak about them and the sort of their concerns about them are really have this adolescent quality. And yet uh, they're in this situation where ultimately like you're, there are either they are depending on or are considering depending on these other people for like, you know, communal survival. Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the most interesting conversations I was speaking to exactly that is when tiny and rat kind of have this like romance that kind of goes on during the filming. And at one point tiny gets arrested and rat is visiting her and he, and she, you know, he's telling her that she, he's going to leave town because he's going to bust his friend out of jail, uh, which has a tragic end to that. But like he was going to bust his friend out of jail. I mean, in a very typical like adolescent puffing chest, like silly nonsense. You know, he's going to knock the guard on the head and, and get the keys and all this shit. And Tiny is like dying, like crying and stuff. And like, you know, you're going to leave before I get out of jail and I won't get to see you. And in he's like, why are you upset? And she, you know, it's this extremely adolescent experience watching it, yeah. right? You know, you watch it, and you think it's back to like junior oh, hires. Yeah, every every relationship I've ever had with a girl, a jail like as a teenager, right? it's basically I'm just watching it play out, right? You know, but at the same time, it's in a fucking jail. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, it's the it's yeah, the fascinating. Why doesn't, level why doesn't he bust it. her out of jail? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. uh, yeah, his other play was very realistic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that should have been her question, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, really, uh, you know, uh, in that sense, like, it's a, it's a very affecting film, I think, uh, in a way that we can say other things about homelessness in Seattle have not been, but it, it is. Uh, homeless yeah. or is homelessness or just the general yeah. depiction of Seattle in yeah. films in general, Yeah, which um, I hope we can get into here and I mean because that's the that's the thing that makes Streetwise so unique and so special is that it's depi- it's not depicting an image of Seattle or it's not um, Seattle isn't a isn't a back isn't a an image of Seattle isn't the backdrop to the film the backdrop to the film is the actual Seattle that existed yeah. at, at that time that was going on you know Columbia Tower is being built while this film is being made I mean mm-hmm. um you know, the, the, the city is growing and it's in flux and, um, that's, it's all there because the film is, is because it's documentary, it's capturing the film on the street. It's not telling a story that it's then setting in Seattle and filming in Vancouver, you know, yeah. it's, um, that that's an idea With a plate of, of the space needle as an establishing shot. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It's I don't not, know, does the space needle make it in? They go to Seattle center and there's a shot of downtown from West Seattle in near the beginning, a big wide, but I think it frames out Queen Anne. I think it's um, just from the uh, port to uh, <laughs> like the regrade. You know, I mean, can you imagine if if this was film film was made today? The producers like demanding you know an aerial shot of the Space Needle or some yeah, shit. Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> the Space Needle shows. I looked for it because I thought, oh, you know, maybe they're intentionally leaving it out. Um, it's in an establishing shot of downtown okay. early in the film. And then it's the backdrop backdrop of a shot where Rat um, demonstrates his pizza scam. Right. Yeah, he goes right. to a yes. payphone yes, and, and right. orders that's a pizza. Right. And uh, yeah, and then it's in the backdrop there. So he was like in Lower Queen Anne or something. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, they don't they don't make a big deal about it. Um, and there's they don't really try to build an identity for Seattle. Like, no. There's a few shots, let's say, like, welcome to the gateway to Alaska or something and there's trains and there's boats 
Um, yeah, but you there's see nothing a lot of pieces. That, you don't, they don't even really have really established, take time to establish the geography of First and Pike. It's really just the snippets. Like you could watch the movie and not necessarily know that it all is taking place on one block. And listen, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. well, well, probably part of the power is that you could, if you weren't a Seattleite, watch yeah. this and think, well, this is downtown in my city. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah, nothing's mm-hmm. given to you that says clearly this is Seattle. Right? Yeah, you know, it could be anywhere. I mean, I got, I confess, like watching it, like having nostalgia for an older Seattle that I don't normally really <laughs> indulge in, you know, yeah. in a, in a, in a twi- twisted way, obviously, mm-hmm. but like, mm-hmm. you know, seeing them down at the old waterfront, you know, in one scene. Um, yeah. Well, now first, the first in Pike, like that corridor, you know, it's, um, is it, I guess the street, the street lingo, it's the edge. That's, that's what mm-hmm. they call it downtown, is the it? dealers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they call it the edge. Okay. It was not the edge yet. I think that, I guess well, it is sort of a cliff, you know, in the, in first, in, um, at that time. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's picks up all these details of Seattle at that time. Um, but kind of unintentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I think the strongest example of that is when, um, they find Rat and his friend living in this um, in this abandoned hotel, mm-hmm. which is uh, it was the Terrace View Hotel. It was built on Yesler Way, you know, the classic uh, original Skid, Skid Road. Road. And uh, I did some. I I looked up, you know, the history of that building when I was writing this thing for for Criterion, and the building at that time was slated for development into off, an office building. I mean, it was it was in development hell. I mean, it had yeah. been abandoned for a couple of years and had been sold between a couple of different people. But at that time, the developer was like, this is going to be office. These are going to be offices. And it's a perfect symbol of what um, downtown was turning into at that time. Because all these all these uh, low-income apartments and, and uh, hotels had been shut down because of fire code and... You know they weren't lucrative anymore, but the but the um, office real estate was in high demand um, because the you know the white collar professional economy um, that Seattle was and was um, increasingly becoming. And um, but Terrace View was built you know decades and decades before and and was for generations was a was a was a low income um, apartment complex and. Uh, and it's apartments now. I mean, it's been re- renovated. I don't think it was ever actually made into an office building. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it, at that time in the early 80s when, when Rat's living there because it's abandoned, it was going to become an office building. And it had been the kind of place where the folks that live on the street now would have called home mm-hmm. um, 100 years ago. Um, you know, because homelessness has, it hasn't, people always haven't been forced to live on the street. There's There's often been, abundant like low income you know uh you know single resident occupancy hotels and 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 so on in in uh, pioneer square and skid road and before that yeah. you know districts where you could live in you know a more permanent shack or tent or something too or a boat yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a boat. That luckily continues. So, but yeah, I mean the flop house was a thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um should we should we have you give us a, you know, since and this is partially the subject of your dissertation like a brief description of the sort of political economy of the area like leading up to 1983 when this is like what like what was going on? We've sort of danced around it about mm-hmm. the sort of looming gentrification and the professional economy being boosted by like local media and then it actually happening. But like, can you give us like a quick run through that? Well, that's kind of the irony of the 
fact that the best film in Seattle that I think the best film that was ever made in Seattle, um, uh, st- streetwise, what its origins were and how the city had been trying desperately for films to be made in Seattle for eight, for, for a decade or uh, plus, um, when streetwise comes in 1983, but they didn't want a film like streetwise that was going to, sh- you know, show Seattle, um, as it was, they wanted films that would show Seattle as they wanted it to be. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, you know, again, the backstory, the political economy of this is, Seattle as a modern city is built after World War II um, with uh, the Boeing company taking off, um, you know, partly from federal funding for, uh, for the Cold War, um, building, you know, military and defense contracts, but mostly because of commercial um, air flight taking off because um, under the auspices of U.S. empire and after World War II, um, global business traffic is just taking off and people need to get from country to country by plane. And Boeing is the premier, uh, you know, um, aircraft manufacturer, and uh, in the world. I mean, it's the. I think in this in the mid century, Boeing has a majority of commercial air air flights are on Boeing planes. Um, so it's it's a huge enterprise. It's underpinning uh, global capitalism, and it needs it needs a home base, and that home base for various reasons uh, is Seattle, and so. All these all these people are moving to Seattle in the '50s and the '60s um, to work at Boeing, and they're recruited from all over the country, um, and they're all middle class, and they're all, or not middle class, but necessarily, but they're all white, they're all male, and they all like to they all think a job at Boeing is will make them middle class. Um, so people ask, often ask why is why is Seattle so white, <laughs> and I, the first answer to that is Seattle's not Seattle is not white. I mean, it has a long history of of you know black and Asian communities here and, uh, you know, indigenous people. So it's not, um, it's kind of the wrong question to answer. But the reason why um, whites predominate is because of a com- company like Boeing that um, was just, I mean, I, I like to think of it another another late wave of settler colonialism. I mean, people mm-hmm. from all over the United States being brought into the Pacific Northwest. Um yeah, I mean, you you mentioned in uh, the article in the in the Blu-ray that uh, when you talk about these magazines, talk about Seattle being one of the most livable cities, you quote one of them in like '77 as saying, "Hey, there's no racial strife, not enough blacks." Right. right? You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, what's that, that a consequence of? Quote. That's a consequence of you know, yeah of um of the political political economy and the kind of jobs here and the racial segregation in the job market. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, long story short, that's the that's that's the economy that 1960s Seattle is built on. Um, you know, hundred uh, hundreds of thousands of people come over a couple decades, and then that all goes uh, to shit in uh, the early 1970s when Boeing had had bet had um, bet the farm on uh, the 747 jumbo jet, um, the biggest you know commercial plane um, uh, to up to that time that was going to shove hundreds of people on a plane and. And, you know, bigger was better. That was kind of the mid-century, you know, ethos. And it turned out bigger wasn't better. And um, the company, you know, it was too big of a project to take on. Um, the company didn't have the resources. They were really stretched with delays and so on. And then there wasn't a market for the 747 either. Um, you know, people wanted smaller planes for shorter flights, not, um, you know, bigger planes for for long flights. So uh, the 747 wasn't selling. Boeing was in big trouble laid off 60,000 people within uh, under two years in the early 1970s. 
Um, this is also when the, the U.S. is taking a beating in Vietnam and the um, military spending is actually declining, um, you know, in itty bits and amounts, but it's enough to affect Boeing because Boeing <laughs> historically had depended on military contracts to to pay the uh, to pay its bills when the when the commercial planes weren't weren't um, selling. So Boeing's Boeing's uh, uh, having a hard time. They could have declared bankruptcy if they if they had wanted to. They were really having a hard time. So city of Seattle is like shit. We need to we need to get off Boeing. I mean, Boeing is not helping us. We need to diversify our economy. So they're trying ex- next to, you know, all sorts of stuff to diversify the economy. And uh, one of the things they try to do is to cultivate a, a motion picture industry. So they, the city, um, I think this is when they found an office of, of film. Um, that might have been later, but they put city resources into sending somebody to Hollywood to like talk <laughs> up Seattle as a as a filming location in the and, midst of you know a massive local depression, right? And yeah. they, yeah, they start yeah. promising all these um, you know tax cuts and I think they call it like red tape cutting and stuff like that for fil- motion picture productions that will promise to come here. Um, so they're they're trying yeah. to do what they can. Uh, so <laughs> what comes out of that is all these really shitty uh um 70s films that are made in seattle um McHugh is one cinderella liberty is another oh, i've never seen um, that that actually all these films i mean overall they're not good films but the, each one of them has like a redeeming quality <laughs> um, like the cinematography <laughs> charm the cinematography of cinderella liberty um is i i mean it's incredible it was one of the what are the mainstays of American cinema? Mm. Vilmo Sigmund, who's a famous cinematographer, uh, really portrays Seattle in this really, this really um, cool light. So there's some some good films that are you know elements of films that are interesting in the 70s. You get to see John Wayne beat up a hippie in in McHugh, where he he's trying to play Dirty Harry. Yeah, um, <laughs> and an ancient John Wayne. Yeah, uh, going after hippies with a, a new toy micro Uzi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and bad health in the best of times. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah on the verge of death, like teeth falling out of his mouth. Probably like talks through like paper thin slit in his lips. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has a love interest who's like a gray hair. I mean, they were really. I mean, it's uh it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty entertaining for all the, all the reasons that they they don't want you to think it's entertaining. But um, another movie, Scorchy, which is absolute. It's an exploitation film with Connie Stevens. I mean, there's all these really bad movies made in the in, in the seventies in Seattle, and they all portray Seattle in kind of this gritty light in the early in the early seventies. Yeah, it's like a gritty industrial town. That's what yeah. you use it for. Way yeah. up until the mid nineties, that's all it was. Class of nineteen ninety nine, yeah. which we famously yeah. saw. That's what it's about. All the way up through Assassins, which I mentioned, which is basically all shot in uh, from downtown South. Like wow. it's all about like the port and. Uh, Soto and like, well, even a uh, class of nine. I mean, speaking to what you were talking about, them like just doing anything to attract uh, Hollywood. I mean, they literally gave them a neighborhood in SeaTac and said, "You can do whatever you want to this neighborhood," and they did. They like drove trucks through houses and shit. And like, <laughs> yeah. it's what makes the movie so badass. But like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, these yeah. are desperate moves of a desperate town. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's actually there's a a movie um, that was was uh, produced under the auspices of this city program um i think it's harry in my pocket about a about a pickpocket and um 
Wes Ullman, the, the the mayor of Seattle, has a cameo where he gets his his wallet stolen. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but the it, it kind of has this this moment that kind of um, presages what what it would happen to Seattle's image and filmmaking in general. Because in the middle of Harry and the, uh, Harry in my pocket, the, they all the the uh, characters in the film get on a ferry and they go to Canada. And the rest of the movies in Canada. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's kind of what happens with the motion picture industry in the yeah, Northwest. That is. Yeah, um, but you, but eventually, right? Once the the gentrification does start, like starting in the early '80s with Microsoft coming, eventually this pays off. It's like they try to do it backwards. They try. They think like we can. I guess it's like when you're a mayor or a city council of a city in America, you have no real like power to affect like the economy. So you you come up with these ludicrous schemes. Like we're gonna plant magazine articles and try to get movies shot here and that's going to like gin up something whatever ultimately <laughs> tech came here and then in the 90s starting in the mid 90s you actually do get seattle set uh, uh, used as a setting for like prosperous middle class uh life like harry and the hendersons and sleepless in seattle mm-hmm yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's kind of the backdrop to what's going on in Seattle, um, prior to Streetwise's production. Um, and, but at the same time that all this is going on, that the boosters in the city are trying to attract middle-class white collar, uh, professions and having a lot of luck at it too. I mean, the federal government's pumping a lot of money into research at the university of Washington, into development of the port of Seattle. Um, you know, the SeaTac airport's getting a lot of federal funding. I mean, uh, a lot of the white collar businesses, what, what kind of builds the foundation for Microsoft and the tech economy is happening in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, but what is also happening is the, the blue collar, um, workforce that is here is becoming increasingly disconnected from Seattle's economy. Yeah. And well, when uh, you lay off 60,000 people over two years, I mean, that is, that's going to, that's like a neutron bomb. Like that's just like, you're just going to, Absolutely dislocate exactly. like an entire town. And the, you know? the kids of Streetwise are the children of the Boeing bust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're 13 to 19. They're born in the early 70s, you know, and maybe a little earlier. But they're growing up the various, you know, as ch like young, young children um, in households that are being t torn apart by um, the Boeing layoffs. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, interesting. I, one of the girls in the film mentions that... Uh, you know, that she doesn't know who her real parents are. And when asked about it, she's like, yeah, you know, my parents, uh, you know, gave me up for adoption. Then my mom tried to lie, or uh, no, it was my parents got divorced. Then my mom, like one month later, gave me up basically to foster care. And then my dad tried to like come and get me and that didn't work. And I was back in foster care and now I'm out here. And you could, with this information, fill in the blanks of what was happening with their parents, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and why this situation was going the way it was. And, you know, in the, uh, as Seattle was booming, the, the regional economy wasn't doing so hot either. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the lumber, lumber industry was having a tough time. Um, people sometimes, this is the, you could call it the political economy of grunge, if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. um, a history PhD from the University of Washington, Trevor Griffey. He taught a Pacific Northwest history class. He called it that. Um, because Kurt Cobain was the same age as these kids in, in Streetwise. Yeah. If you want to put it in context and perspective, he was like the exact same age as Tiny. Mm -hmm. And you think, um, you know, we haven't mentioned yet um, the film Tiny, uh, The Life of Aaron um, Blackwell, which is a sequel to Streetwise, which follows up on the life of Tiny, 
um, 30 years on with her and she's had kids of her own in her family life. And is released on the same Blu-ray from the mm -hmm. Criterion. Yeah. So if you got that, you get both films. But you think about her life and you think about Kurt Cobain's life and um, Kurt Cobain came from a broken home in the hinterland of Seattle and, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was, some of these kids could have been Kurt Cobain. I mean, Kurt Cobain lived on the street, um, you know, and you think about some of the, you know, if you think about it that way, it puts, puts it in more perspective about how, how big these, these, the, the material impacts of these recessions were on people and, and, um, the different, the different, uh, roads they could have gone down in life. Um, you know, so that's the backdrop to Streetwise. And that's when, when, um, Martin Bell and Mary Ellen Mark and Shell Martin, when they come to Seattle in 1983, that's what they find. Mm-hmm. They yeah. find, um, kind of the, the legacies of all that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been a really good discussion about like the, um, the content of the movie, uh, which I think is what, you know, is primarily what you're going to talk about because it is so moving and important. Um, and so human, but it, as a piece of cinema, it is also extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah, I, I mean, I compare it in the essay I wrote for Criterion to some more famous films like Bicycle Thieves mm-hmm. and kind of Italian neorealist film that was filmed right after World War II. And, you know, this country was had just been devastated by war and these films that humanize the struggle of people in Italy. Or um, one of the, the greatest American films, um, Killer of Sheep, mm-hmm. which is about um, a, f- a black family in Watts uh, in post-industrial Los Angeles. Um, you know, these, they're, they're films that were made with non-professional actors and were filmed in the communities that they're depicting. And so those are stories of those, those are fictional films and they tell fictional stories. They're filmed in an environment, they're, they're filmed in, in a, in communities that, um, they're not, they're not Hollywood sets. They didn't build the sets for this. Yeah, it's it's all it's all real and they didn't dress the extras in, you know, costumes that came out of a wardrobe department, you know. Exactly. And I think streetwise should be should be talked about on the same level as as films like that. Um and the film is very intentionally cinematic too. I mean yeah, they were yeah. the filmmakers were very self consciously influenced by like F- Federico Fellini and and um you see that in the film too, and and I, I you might fault them for being a little too cinematic at some point, at some points like uh, or those, those influences are a little maybe a little too strong at, at some times, but um, I mean it works ultimately. Look, it, it it is they they are they are using the tools of cinema. It's mm-hmm. not they're not trying to because it's such a heavy subject or because it's so real. They're not trying to make it like visually dry you know they're they're using every tool at their disposal and in the and that's in the way that i mean in the way that it's structured in the way the release of information i mean it's not necessarily in in chronological order they're they're telling you a story here they're getting they you know they're very you know uh cinematically shooting some of these uh, shots. I mean, him jumping off the bridge in the beginning with his voiceover in slow motion. You know, it is just beautifully photographed, though, as well. Like it's almost all uh, natural or available light when it's indoors. Though most of it 
does not most of it takes place outside yeah i i certainly don't fault them for making a a beautiful and affecting movie Mm -hmm. you know i mean that was a lot that owed a lot to the experience of uh, martin bell who's the yeah the um yeah, who had a lot of experience um, in the UK as a documentary filmmaker making films for like the BBC. And um, there was, so before uh, the Streetwise uh, community blew up on Facebook, um, there was the forums of the Internet Movie Database. Nice. Sure. And some of the earliest uh, earliest things you'd find about Streetwise on the Internet were on the comments of, of Internet Movie Database, the Streetwise entry. And if you go, you can still, they're still there. You can go back and look. And I remember, I think I read, first read these in high school. Like I was, mm-hmm. I wanted to learn more about this film. And but do you have comments in there from that time? I do not. Ha- I did not leave comments. <laughs> um, you know, I, there's no, there's no uh, remnants of my adolescence on internet movie database, uh, which is probably for the better. Um, <laughs> but there are comments from people who are in the film. Um, like Rat's uh, now wife posts something like, wow. oh yeah, Rat was in this movie. You know, he hates it when we talk about it. <laughs> you know, and and people start posting their memories about what happened to somebody and, and this and that. And one of the comments that got posted was by the um, assistant, cam- assistant cameraman on the shoot uh, whose name's escaping me, but I name him in the essay. And he said something like, you know, when we, when this pe- f- film was released, people, people thought it was too beautiful to be a documentary. Mm-hmm. They, and he's like, are you kidding me? This was like standard fare on the BBC. Yeah, like yeah. this is, this yeah. is something people in the UK were seeing all the time. And so it really took a, I guess it, it took somebody from out, outside the United States, um, to, to really make this film because they, they didn't have all that, I guess the baggage, um, I, I imagine an American filmmaker might have a different, you know, they might approach it differently. Or maybe um, just not have, like, the same skill set because there wasn't funding for this. Yeah. Like they, they were, you know, BBC cranked out documentary films during this period. So there was a there was a market for it to develop that skill set, you know. So, I mean, there's a certain foreign... I mean, it's like actors yeah. now. There's a reason yeah. why all actors are British now. It's <laughs> It's... A, it's an economic thing. They have, a, yeah. they train them there. It's an mm-hmm. economic thing, the Illuminati, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, but there's a certain foreignness about the film, yeah. about Streetwise, that uh, even John Hartle, who, uh, bless him, like praised the film, like, you know, um, and, and made sure people saw it. His first frame of reference and his, his, his like, uh, first review of the film. Um, was a Brazilian film about us about street kids. I it's also a Criterion uh, movie. Quixote. Yeah. Um. He's like this is this is that that was like the first film he thought of. He couldn't mm-hmm. think of, a, of an American film like that. You know. Yeah. Um. Because there there aren't any like it. Even yeah. though it's about an American subject, it's not it's not supposed to. It's not a subject you find in American film. Right. Or if you do, if there it, there are, um, there are other films about poverty or about even you know so i think of okay so it's not exactly the same but uh it appeals to me for the same reason it's a film about working class struggle harlan county usa sure yeah Yeah. uh that's looks and feels like a bunch of home like 70s home movie footage right it does it's not a beautiful movie it is beautiful in certain ways it is i mean it's a daylight photography on on eight and 16 millimeter film it's always you know from a different period it's going to have like an effect on me in a certain way but it is not we're talking about a very different thing here like this 
there's a reason this was nominated for an Academy Award. It is an exceptionally beautiful movie. Um, and that is just different from other American fare, even this what exists. You know? Well, and I think, yeah, because, I mean, in Harley County, USA, I mean, you're talking about somebody who, I don't know if they have made a film before. I think they literally right. just grabbed the cameras and went and shot it. Mm-hmm. And so much of, like, good American documentary is that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in six, in that's, 60, all, that's all you can do. Yeah, in, like, 68, there was this really, like, uh, famous documentary that came out about poverty in San Antonio. That was, like, one of these big things that was supposed to, like, help push through some, like, anti-poverty programs. Uh, but if you ever, it's impossible to find. You can find clips of it online. Looks like dog shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, because it was also made in this way where they, like, didn't know what a documentary was. And they're like... Is it like a panic film that you show kids in school where you just have a single photo and you just play like dramatic music while you say, you know, this child will die today, (laughs) which is like the opening sequence of the film, you know, and like that's not good cinema. Like, I mean, I I think it is true that like the infrastructure was there for these people to know this. Uh, all for the better because it makes it fucking good to watch, you know, and it makes it like uh, all the more engaging to, to watch. Well, it, yeah. it's worth mentioning the funding for Streetwise, which yeah. is, is kind of um, it gets it gets mentioned a lot in like media um, journalism about Streetwise. So Cheryl Martin, who wrote the Life magazine feature of originally about street youth in Seattle, she had been writing for outlets like Life and for people and people mm-hmm. for like a decade. So she had a lot of celebrity friends. Mm-hmm. And one of her friends was Willie Nelson. Yeah. Yes. You know, country music star. And his wife at the time, I don't know how many wives he's had, but yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. uh, his wife was actually from Seattle and uh, they put up all the money for the movie. And Frogs. Um, that's I mean, yeah. but it shows like it was ad hoc, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of things that had to come together that wasn't well, like, they, yeah, there's obviously no, there's no like business model in Hollywood. But they had the money, like this. they had the money for the film, for the, for the film stock, first of all, which is expensive. Yeah. But they also had kind of state of, at the time, state of the art audio equipment, mm-hmm. which is why you, you hear these kids from like a block away. It is. Yeah. You don't, you don't see any boom mic. The sound is incredible. And on the criterion, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't do much to clean it up. And it, you, you expect when you see a documentary mm-hmm. from this period of like a, a marginalized subject, you expect it to sound like shit mm-hmm. and it, it really doesn't. Well, the, it's incredible. All the, I mean, most of the kids were mic'd up too. And they yeah. had, they had like, yeah, I mean, they were experienced. They knew the technology. Um, and that's where most of the money for the film went was these, um, were these remote wireless, uh, mics yeah. that they had the kids wear, which is, which was, yeah, that was like the state of the art in Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a, there's a shot or two in tiny, um, the Life of Aaron Blackwell, the sequel or the follow-up, um, that has some some clips, kind of behind-the-scenes clips of uh, Streetwise, and you see Mary Ellen Mark wearing this giant. It looks like a boombox, but it's mm-hmm. really it's the, the sound the receiver, yeah, yeah, the recorder, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and she's got some headphones. Um, but you can imagine they just they just sat, you know, they they sat there on the block. They they probably got the kids mic'd when they first showed up, and then mm-hmm. they just sat there just for sat hours. There, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can see it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, dedication and craft, you know, um, and and journalistic instincts. Like a lot, you know, three like people coming together to really like pull everything, all of their sort of craft together and make something incredibly beautiful. Well, maybe we should uh, look. Given this show, the show's history, given this city, and the last. 
two or three years. I don't think we can get away with not comparing it to Seattle is dying. The other most famous documentary about home documentary in quotes, definitely about homelessness in Seattle. As um, you do in the real change piece. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what are, you know, maybe your thoughts on, um, this film versus Seattle is dying, which and our audience more, should more, be very familiar. Yeah, with. And more importantly, yeah, our audience knows about the movie, but more <laughs> importantly, um, what do you think has changed, I guess, in Seattle that has led from having one very sympathetic view of these kids downtown to, let's just say, a less sympathetic view <laughs> to it today? Well, I don't think anything has changed, first of all. I mean, mm -hmm. the continuity between the 80s and Streetwise and now is um, prisons and hospitals. Like, mm -hmm. that's those are the institutional... Um, spaces of streetwise it's jails and it's clinics and that's the same thing um now i mean the, the default responses to homelessness or street life are you know island prison is the yeah. message of uh when I, I seattle is dying so the so seattle is dying is like the anti streetwise i mean mm -hmm. it's it's filmed at a distance i mean they filmed people that that um you know they thought were homeless or were going through crises or something. And they film them from blocks away. They yeah. get the, they don't talk to them. You know, the narration they talk to the is, cops about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's purely voyeuristic, right? You know, everything is through a, a telephoto lens, right? You know, like as if they were as far away, maybe in a van with just a little hole in it, they like stuck the camera up to or something. Right. And, and instead of letting uh, people on the street speak for themselves, mm -hmm. they speak, they don't, speak for them they speak over them and they speak uh speaking to people who are clearly you know in homes about what to do about these people and um you know the solutions that seattle is dying puts forward is like you know ex forced exile you know incarceration you know island um, prison island prison so i it's it's like get this it's it's basically saying you're in the terminal cancer ward and this is how you're going to get it this well, is how you, yeah. that is the difference mm -hmm. is in 1983 you've got people from outside seattle coming in and asking everybody to actually look at this problem that everyone's ignoring People are shocked, right? Can this be true? Like you're telling us, be that must mean that people were ignoring poverty, uh, homelessness, street life, these crises that are going on. What's changed now is it's gotten exponentially worse. There are more people suffering in these, uh, you know, disconnected lives lived on the street. And so people can't ignore it. And so instead they are obsessed with it. And they are offering solutions and those solutions are, you know, carceral and basically, mm -hmm. you know, uh, genocidal. Yeah. I think there's a, um, I, I bring it up in the, in the, uh, real change piece because it was too specific too Seattle specific for criterion. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a, there's kind of a, there's a, um, anti-homeless cinema of Seattle that big, at, Begins at least with the Seattle Police Department's training video, yes. oh, uh, yeah. slickly produced music video uh, under the viaduct, which has um, like makeup and effects and fake blood and well, costumes. Like, and we should point out, as, and, uh, I believe, filmed in 1986, so very shortly after Streetwise. I mean, this is SPD's version of Streetwise. Exactly. Yeah. Three, yep. yeah, three years, well, uh, he, two or three years later. Yeah, it's it's all it's like you could. The, 
if everyone in town knew about Streetwise, whether they saw it or not, if he was nominated for an Academy Award, you can see that being the germ in the mind of like, oh, this is how you communicate to people is through film. And that ending up in some cop's mind, that sort of twisting around and you end up with their little parody music video uh, about, you know, vagrants living on yeah, the Andrew, waterfront. Maybe you can give us a, a just a quick description of the video for anybody else. We've probably it. talked about it on this show. Well, uh, it's been a while. Link to it. It's on YouTube. And the, the reason why it's on YouTube is because it was so bad that uh, the SPD released it in like 2013. They're like, we don't want this going out on, on we don't want people to find out about this um, on on anyone else's terms but ours. And we're going to say this was destroyed, you know, ordered to be destroyed. Ordered to be destroyed, yet they still had it in 2013. (laughs) A a real mysterious situation. And and the the, the strangest part is how well produced and how many Mm -hmm. people are in this video. Seriously, it's It's, all starring cops dressed up as... Uh, their bones. imagination of homeless people, yeah. which is literally taken out of a cartoon from the 1920s. Yeah. Like they have like Bendel sacks and shit. And they have, they have b- bottles with like triple X on. And like yeah. they got, yeah. they got, you know, they clearly got like the cameramen from like King five, you know, uh, to come down oh, yeah. and shoot it. Cause it is like, it is very, it looks like local it is produced on bro- its broadcast cameras. And it has the sort of, uh, cinematic qualities of broad local broadcast television. The sort of uh, the pans and transitions are uh, like the it has literally like the local news um, pan from your subject to the establishing shot. You know to take you out of a scene. Like it's some like new it's some news cameraman. You know. Yeah, and um, so under the viaduct, it's a take on under the boardwalk song and the viaduct rest in peace um <laughs> oh some Way beautiful viaduct, shots of the viaduct which um this is for another time but there is a whole cinema of the alaskan way viaduct oh, yeah absolutely. Um, it's featured in so many films through the 70s and 80s um i did a twitter thread about it and we could do a whole show i've shot the four movies the on and commercials on the viaduct um, it's, it's hilarious that the most cinematic thing that seattle has ever had was this concrete monstrosity that mm-hmm. they were in such a hurry to tear down? Well, they weren't uh, in a hurry. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's well, a little unfair. I mean, well, they, it was falling down for twenty years before they took it down. Sure. Well, I real mean, estate San prices Fra- had to hit the right. San Francisco <laughs> got rid of the raised uh, waterfront freeway they built in the fifties in the seventies when they realized it was a, it was an ugly bad idea. So, but yeah, um, hey, like, yeah but everyone did hate it. It was the best view you could possibly get, like anywhere in Seattle, is driving northbound on the upper deck. Oh, it created of... it created so much shadow. Uh, you know, that's why oh, yeah. all the films made in that era too are filmed around First Avenue because there's so much shadow in that mm-hmm. period. The opening, I think, the opening scene of McHugh is a cop being assassinated in the wee hours of the morning, like mm-hmm. in the fog mm-hmm. underneath the viaduct. I mean, anyway, uh, so there's uh, you know. Other things happen under the viaduct. That's not what the the cops being shot was not the theme of the song in the eighties. This was a training video for the Seattle Police Department. Which, uh, yeah, so they that is, but the spirit of that mean spirited, um, you know, tone of that uh, training video is the same thing as as uh, Seattle is dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 about um, trying to get. Or it's not taking seriously the kind of social dislocation and violence that you see in front of you. Yeah. Um, and it's either trying to get it out of your face or making fun of it, um, you know, which 
makes you feel uncomfortable, you know, you want to remove it from yourself. So you laugh at it. You know? Well, those are, maybe that's another stage in there then too, in the evolution of this as like in people's minds in this town is maybe after streetwise, you couldn't ignore it anymore. And, uh, then at some point I get, maybe, maybe these, these probably overlap a lot, but you make, okay, if you can't ignore it, you make fun of it. You make fun of poverty and misery um, and uh, now we're, we've just like, you know, we've leapt way past all that to well, like pitchforks, uh, and torches, you know? Well, what I think is interesting, I mean, cause you watch Streetwise and in one sense, it's a, a picture of a grimier Seattle, right? An older Seattle, et cetera. Right. Uh, but the problem of poverty is so much worse now, right? Yeah. And the problem of homelessness is so much worse. That is, yeah. That's an interesting and, well, conflict. Just there. because yeah. Pike, first and Pike was grimy then mm-hmm. doesn't mean... That the, the city that, was. that other yeah or the suburbs of Seattle are grimy yeah. now right yeah. like um, tiny the um, life of Aaron Blackwell that's shot in South King County yeah um, you know in like the Algona area mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a world removed from uh, First and Pike today um, yeah I mean we talked about in our episode on Sundown Towns we talked about that basically Seattle just shoved the poor out of the city right and. I think, you know, in talking, I, I made my wife watch this with me and the long tradition of making her uh, cry for this podcast. But, uh, you know, after we watched Streetwise, one of the things that we talked about was like, what would it be different about it if, if it was shot today, right? And, um, you know, the, one of the things that would be different is there'd be a lot more cops and a lot more jail time in it, right? Like, it would just center around the police a lot more because the police just interact with the homeless a lot more now. And... uh it shows that since this came out, you know, 30 years on down the road, what has been the solution to this issue of poverty and stuff, uh, the inequality in the city and things like that, and that solution's just become, I think, arguably increasingly carceral <laughs> over this time. And uh, it's, you know, it, it, I guess it doesn't make you, I guess I got to give it to the post intelligence, sir. It doesn't make you feel good <laughs> to think about that. But yeah. Yeah. It's it's bad, folks. Any any other closing thoughts, Andrew? Um, just that um, Streetwise is a very personal film for me too. Um, I'm not really comfortable writing about it, but um, I've had family members who lived on the streets or were adjacent to the streets who could have been in Streetwise if they were if they were there at any other time. I mean, if they were there in the in the 1980s, um, you know my 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 dad's family. Um, he's from the Seattle area and, um, he's, he grew up in South King County and a lot of his, his brothers and sisters or people he grew up with, um, were, you know, what if one, one thing or another had happened, they could have been, um, on the streets, like in streetwise. And the, and I think that that's, um, uh, that's the thing to remember is that there's, <laughs> that, uh, you know, the youth that you see in Streetwise, a lot of them have homes. They're not necessarily homeless. Mm-hmm. And um, they're in and out of their homes. And um, they go through periods where they're on the street, but they're not always on the street. And um, it's a generational thing, too. And the tra- trauma that their parents have experienced is being passed on to them. The addiction that they used to deal with the trauma and the things, the hardships that they deal with is being passed on intergenerationally. And... Um, there, I've experienced that in my family too. And I think most people, you know, whatever their background probably have 
experiences in their family, given the given the magnitude of problems of of addiction and um, poverty and stuff in this country, not just in Seattle. Everybody's had an experience like that, and so watching Streetwise, I see I see family members, and I see, um, and it's enraging that people can watch that and not uh, be moved to do something about it, and not in kind of a panicked sort of way. You have to impact a whole generation in a really profound way in order to in order to change the um, the conditions that lead to homelessness and things like that. I mean, it's got to you know, what, what World War II did for, you know, the white working class, for instance, you know, it was its generational investments in various, you know, in industries and, and um, a certain population of people. I mean, it's been done for people of privilege, you know, and it should be done for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's kind of my final thoughts. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's an important point because, you know, prior to the creation of Social Security, the elderly were one of the most impoverished populations. It's like, you can act on these things. Yeah. And I think when watching Streetwise, one of the things that you think about over and over again is, what if there was anything to help these kids? Like, what if there was any social structures whatsoever that actually provide any amount of support? And there's just not. And there's less now. And there's less now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well... Everyone, at a time when you are uh, emotionally prepared and maybe with someone you love, watch this in extraordinarily beautiful portrait of youthful poverty in this town. It's a universally applicable story um, and it's uh, a really powerful one. And watch the follow-up, um, Tiny, mm-hmm. The Life of Aaron Blackwell um, too, which um, is just as affecting as, as Streetwise, and, but in different ways. Um, it's a different film because it's more fo- focused on kind of a domestic um, family portrait, um, but it's just as powerful. And it's um, it hits the same notes about the importance of day-to-day survival and the importance of love um, in getting through adversity. Um, and it it gives it's an amazing portrait of Erin Blackwell, um, tiny and streetwise, and um, the things that she's gone through and what she's done to create a family. Um, that she can be proud of. Um, so yeah, I would, if you can do a double feature, um, <laughs> if you have the time to do a double feature, I'd recommend it. That's the best way to do it. Um, fantastic. Okay. We will link to, um, both of Andrew's articles. Um, and, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy, uh, Streetwise and Tiny, the life of Aaron Blackwell. Thanks everybody. Um, I think, I we do also need to thank a couple of patrons here who I have. Let's see, we've got. Uh, thank you, CMPN. Thank you, Uncle Jebediah, and thank you, Eben, who is holding out yeah. to be the hundredth patron. Uh, a glory he held in his hands for a day. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, uh, thank you again, our my old friend Andrew. Um, mm-hmm. This Thanks has been for awesome. having me. Yeah, um, I hope hope I can come back and talk about uh, other Seattle movies sometime. Yeah, yeah. Twilight coming up. Twilight, um, yeah, all of them. Fifty Shades of Grey, one through three, we're doing them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, uh, I no doubt that is in our future. Okay, uh, bye everybody. <laughs> bye.